Welcome to the Happy Holy Podcast. I'm Anna Marie Frank, a doctor of traditional naturopathy and certified brain health professional. Now, those of you that know Happy Holy You, you know that we are all about health and well-being, and we combine all the physical aspects, nutritional aspects, as well as the energetic and emotional aspects to well-being. So on this podcast, you guys, you are going to get a variety of information with different topics that can range from brain health all the way to how your energy field impacts your overall health and well-being. Now, let me remind you that we are not giving medical advice on this podcast, and these are just our personal experiences and information that we are sharing. If you do have any physical or any mental challenges going on in your life, we highly recommend that you seek a medical professional that you have a strong relationship with. All right, you guys, we are going to get started. So here we go. All right, Dr. Fred, thank you for joining me today. Really, really great to be here. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me as a guest. It's an honor. Yes. So let's just jump into a little bit about yourself and what got you into the position where you're at today talking about undoctoring your mental illness. Yeah, it's really great. So it does really go back a long ways, but you don't have to fear that I'm going to tell you every detail. It goes back to the day I was born. I was really born to a family that was in chaos and disarray. I had two brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me and my parents. And apparently from what I hear, they weren't getting along very well. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of disarray and, and fighting and all. And my job was to show up as a bundle of joy and to bring communication and connection to this world. And that's really what I did. You know, I brought joy. I don't think my brothers right now would say that's what I'm doing. But at the time, that's what <laughs> I did. rolling bundle of joy and my laughter. And, you know, they kept me precocious. They taught me how to read before I went to kindergarten and how to do a little math and how to, you know, the, I knew a little bit about what was going on in the world. And I really thought that school was going to be the place where I learned how to communicate. So I expected conventional education to teach me how to communicate because I was so enchanted watching the four adults talk to each other. My sister, my younger sister had been born already, but I was helping people understand her. And I expected the world to help me understand how to communicate. That isn't how it went, of course. You know, in school, I got constricted and contracted and I was kind of told to be quiet. But being the precocious, smart kid who was uh, bored all the time, I was like the class clown and the smartest guy in the class. And you know that guy, he was in your class as well. And, you know, there's no elementary school teacher who didn't know that Fred was in their class, that's for sure. And that's because I talked a lot and I really just wanted to learn how to communicate effectively. I expected that to happen as I went into the greater, the later grades, like junior high or high school. But of course, it didn't happen there either. It even got more constrictive. So when time came to consider college and, you know, there was already some protests going on, I could see that there was communication on the campuses and I expected to go to the University of Michigan and, and learn how to communicate. And I did learn how to communicate, but not in the classrooms. I learned how to do it in the, you know, in the streets and I learned how to do it in the community. But in the classrooms, that wasn't it. The classrooms were even more constrictive than ever. The idea, of course, is just simply regurgitate what the professor says and call that communication and good grades. And I just couldn't handle that. So I dropped out of college and I came across the country to Berkeley, California, so that I could actually find myself. And indeed, again, I did find myself, but in a non-sustainable way. And I was like, encouraged to come back to um, school by my parents, who told me, along with my brothers, that there was this new industry that was going to take the world by storm that I would probably be pretty good at. 
So that was in 1978 and the industry was called computers. And the only computer that there was in all of Michigan was at the University of Michigan. It was a two acre facility. <laughs> and I went back so that I could do punch cards and batch jobs and all of that. And I spent 24 hours at times in that in that crazy computer building. And that wasn't going to work as a career either. So I dropped out for once and for all. I told my parents I'm never going back to school for any reason. And my mom told me to get, that she, I'd have to get a job. You know, that's how moms are. And they got me an application for a state mental health facility where I could be a child care worker for adolescent boys. These kids, they were only seven years younger than me. And this is where I really learned how to communicate. This is where healing began. This is where I really started to communicate effectively with these residents of the state mental health facility. And healing took place in all directions, them, all of us. I want to jump in real quick. What do you think it was about having that position and being in front of these people that forced you to learn how to communicate better? Like what, what was that like? Yeah, That's all I had to do. That was my job. I was on the afternoon shift. I love these kids. I loved healing people. I'm a healer, you know, and I, and this, I just was so interested in them. And I think what happened was what was different or what made it attractive is I never really treated these kids like there was anything wrong with them. I never, ever decided there was anything wrong with them. They were just in the circumstances that they were in. They might as well have been my friends. And, you know, I was the leader, of course. I was a leader. And we did field trips and all that where I took them all over Detroit. But really what it was was communication was called for. In the end, that's all that's called for. That's why we're having this podcast. In the end, we all know that connection and communication, creativity and and conversation is at the heart of all healing. There's no human who doesn't know that. And this yeah. is where I've just finally learned it on the, in the field. And I think too, like what you said was so important is that you didn't treat them any differently and you just communicated with them. And I think like, even with children, it's, it's when you talk to your child and you communicate with your child, like they're just anybody else, any other adult, those kids really their vocabulary, their ability to communicate really, really thrives. And I I think that is, that's so important that we do that no matter who's in front of you. Exactly. And I really, I, that's what I learned. I think that was where it became more intensive. That's where, you know, as the afternoon shift and occasional day shift, that's what I was called on to do, you know, come into the work and then just communicate. And that's all I had to do. And then write some notes at the end of the day saying that I communicated with my kid. The thing that I hated about that job, and there was one thing that I couldn't stand about that job actually was psychiatry. And, you know, psychiatry, we would call the psychiatrist if Timmy and Tony got in a fight or if Jimmy was up too late and he'd come down from his call room, interview Jimmy for like three seconds, interview us for like seven seconds, go into the nursing station and then write some order. And then we'd have to go retrieve Jimmy and bring him into the quiet room and pull down his sweatpants and give him a shot, shot. you know, a dog grade cocktail of some sort. And if we put him in a stupor for 24 hours, we would call that a success story. That was heinous and barbaric and unacceptable in my world and remains that way. As in fact, this has already happened like thousands of times in this country this morning. This has already happened again. Let's make that very clear. This isn't an old time thing. This isn't a state mental hospital thing. This is a thing. This is what's happening in the institutions. It's not happening to everyone, but it's happening to hundreds and thousands of people every single day. And, you know, this chemical restraint thing is something that was got its roots back in that day. 
I really despise that. And I made it my business since my brother, 14 years older than me, was already a psychiatrist that I was going to go into psychiatry and properly bring communication and connection back into that field. So I went back to school one more time for that exact purpose. I went, you know, finished in Detroit and then um, got accepted to medical school and then went through residency and child and adolescent fellowship. And the whole idea was I was going to be a beacon of communication. In the meantime, however, there was a, a fly in the ointment. In 1987, Prozac was introduced to the world. And Prozac just altered the world just as much as anything that's going on in our present day. Prozac was a huge, huge, huge deal. It was like on, birth control. Everyone's on birth control and everyone's on Prozac. That's right. Exactly. And it, <laughs> it solves that's everything, that, right? <laughs> well, actually, birth control works. Prozac does not work. <laughs> And that was really a problem. You know, Prozac, the whole idea of biological psychiatry or of chemical imbalance, that whole theory got born at that time. And there's no real reality. There's no rooted reality in any of that. Nevertheless, when I came out of residency, I was already earmarked and typecast to be a diagnoser and a prescriber because that's what I did. And I already had sunken costs. I was already in. I'm a doctor. What the heck? You know, this is what they are asking me to do. So Every prescription I wrote, and literally, Anna, I've written over 100,000 prescriptions, was a little bit of a heartache and a soul sacrifice, and sometimes a lot of a heartache and a soul sacrifice, because I knew there were better ways to go than to serve up these semi-toxic or sometimes frequently fully toxic medicines. But I did it anyways, because that's what the customer wanted, and that was what was being called for, and it created a fair amount of duplicity in my own personal life. So that actually, that duplicity spreads. When you're doing that in your occupation, you're duplicitous everywhere. You know, where you do one thing, you do everything kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, and it's, that's how we're, we've been conditioned in this culture. When I struggled with my mental health in my early twenties, which got me to the point of doing what I do today, it was after, you know, didn't feel good. My mental health wasn't stable. So I was, I thought, oh, well, I go see a psychiatrist. I spend- 15 minutes with them. And I have three prescriptions in my hand as a good little girl, a good student. I go and I fill those right up and start taking them and I become worse. And never did it occur to me at the time is, you know, this doctor is prescribing medication for an organ, my brain that was never scanned or looked at. It's all subjective feedback and, oh, well, let's try this cocktail. Let's try this cocktail. And now that I've reflected and done what I've done, I'm like, this is like, criminal. You would never get put on heart medication for your heart or blood pressure meds if there was not some type of diagnosis or tool to test to see if you need it. And so this whole thing about brain chemistry too, because I was always told, oh, well, you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. And I'm like, as I've gotten older, I'm like, how did they even know that? They don't know that. (laughs) So it's just, it's very, very fascinating that, but we are very trained. So people show up, And they're like, I expect to get a prescription, not all people, but because if they walk out with a prescription, then it's like, oh, well, at least I paid for something. How many times do people go to doctors and they walk away feeling defeated? So I guess if they have that little tangible prescription in their hand, they're like, oh, okay. So it's it's the only subspecialty in all of medicine that if you tell people they're okay, they get furious. (laughs) So that's what psychiatry is. And (laughs) people don't come there to find out they're okay. They come there to walk away with confirmation that there's something wrong with them. Yeah, to validate how they're feeling. Right. And, you know, give them an opportunity in many cases to relinquish responsibility for the parts of their life that they're not proud of. And that's really what psychiatry is. And 
frankly, by the time you get to psychiatry, you've gone through whatever you've gone through inside of talking to other people, whether social workers or psychologists or friends or family counselors, mentors, clergy, whatever. And someone has made a referral to kick it up to psychiatry, you know, and then so that we can do the final task, which is to actually diagnose you with a so-called real condition and then treat you with some sort of toxic laboratory induced um, medication that is supposed to upend some sort of chemical imbalance that simply doesn't exist in the first place. That's right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well said. Well said. So undoctoring. Not my first rodeo after all. (laughs) (laughs) Undoctoring your mental illness. Mm-hmm. How does one start with that? Well, it's really an interesting task. So here's the thing. There's, there's a couple things I want to say about this before we even get started. And very important. There are some listeners here who are happy with the way things are going in their mental health world. They've been diagnosed. They're being treated. They like their therapist. They think their medicines are working and everything is fine. And this is the best they can hope for. And they're glad that they found everything they found. For those people, please stay on exactly what you're on. If you have gone through a space in life where you feel like you have reached the point of satisfaction, no matter where that realm is, stay on that realm. It is such a rare event to find satisfaction in life. And if you feel like you've gotten what you've gotten in a way that is satisfactory to you in the mental health world, I am not suggesting that you should change horses in midstream at all. And I really want to make that very clear. This is for the hundreds of millions of people who don't meet that criteria, however. (laughs) And there are hundreds of millions of people who don't meet that criteria, who are unhappy with how things have gone, feel like they're not being heard, feel like they're misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or undiagnosed, and feel like there's something wrong with them and no one has ever really taken uh, the opportunity to, to actually listen to what's really happening. Now, in that space, what I really want people to get is, you know, like in in 2006, I finally had enough. I was done, you know, it still was 15 years where I had just been kind of a a good doctor and doing what was told. But in 2006, my duplicity got too much for me. And I started doing something a little bit rogue, I guess, a little bit radical. And that was taking people off of medicine. Now, doctors are not taught how to do that. We're just not. We're taught how to add, increase, or change medicines if there's a continual problem. But if there's a problem after you start medicine, we attribute that to the condition. Yeah. So I want everyone to hear that one more time. Doctors are not trained to take you off medication. That's right. So even if you're prescribed, as I was, medications that made me worse. Right. My doctor was not trained on how to properly take me off. All he did was kept adding. That's right. Adding, increasing, and changing are the only things we're taught. And that's because the the equation is if you get worse, it's because your condition got worse, not because the medicine caused you to get worse. There is no (laughs) real equation that the medicine caused you to get worse. So we overlook the possibility, the very strong possibility that these medications actually increase or perpetuate or frequently cause the symptoms they're marketed to treat. We overlook that. We pretend that that isn't a possibility. And so we're not really taught how to, how or even when to stop medicine as a way of a therapeutic intervention. So in 2006, I got the idea that I would take my low-risk patients off of medicine, and I began to do that. Mostly these were people were... Um, by low risk, they had been on medicine for a long time, the same dose, they were ready, ready and willing, and we tried it. And I took a handful, maybe it was 25 people in my practice off medicine, and every single one of them got better. Every single one of them. Like in most cases, their diagnosis entirely disappeared. 
And this was a really major finding in my life. You know, it wasn't publishable in the journals or anything because the journals don't want to hear about that. But it was really exactly what had happened. And so I wanted to scream this from the mountaintops. I wanted to tell my colleagues, like, you know, if you take your patients off medicines, they'll get way better. But I couldn't really do that. And there's no room to be violent about this. That's the other thing. I felt like I wanted to be violent, you know, just really just scream. And at times, I think that the finding was so fresh that I was sort of violent in the way that I would present it to others. But I learned later that it was more important for me to be communicative than violent. Like, it's more important for me to get the point across. I'm not mad at the medicines. I'm not mad at insurance companies. I'm not mad at big pharma. I'm not mad at other doctors. I'm not mad at anyone. That's not their fault. These are inert substances. These companies being mad at big pharma is not really a deal because big pharma doesn't exist. That's just a concept. There's no, you can't call up big pharma. You can't call up an insurance company. You know, this yeah. is, there are people doing their jobs there and they're good people. That's the other thing. They might be your next door neighbor who's just a great person. They might be the parent of a child, you know, who's a friend of yours. Like it's all good. These are people who are doing their job and I'm not angry with any of them. And I've really learned how to cool that down rather than try to torch the system. The system is torchable, but there's no one. It's set up so damn beautifully that there's no one piece to poke at. So as I step back and look at the system, here's what I learned. The only entryway that makes any sense is actually through the patient. That's the only way that it makes any sense. The only person here who is making a sovereign decision is the patient. And as a position from a sense of agency, meaning no one is holding these people down to tell them to line up around the block every month so that they can get their medication and then make sure that they take their medicine before breakfast every single day and before they go to sleep. No one is holding you down or putting a gun to your head to do that. And the only reason you're doing that is because you have learned and accepted and agreed that there's something wrong with you. That's what's happened. When I talked earlier about the idea, if you go to a psychiatrist and they say there's nothing wrong with you, just get furious with them and tell them you're going to go to a real doctor next door and you'll get your diagnosis that way. Yeah. And that happened a lot. You know, when I would tell people that, you know, this might be a regular human experience, they just get pissed. Yeah. No, seriously. Yeah. I want you to this a regular human experience. Right. We are supposed to feel the polarity of life. Yeah. And this is actually a normal human experience. Exactly. I mean, we are not going to feel rainbows and butterflies every single day of our life. That's right. However, we can choose how we think we can choose how we respond or how we react to things. And I think that that's so important to get across because so many people feel as did I, that I was a victim of life, I guess you would say. Right. And I would blame everything on everyone and everything was doom and gloom. And I never, I wasn't taking personal responsibility of how I was showing up in my life. I wasn't changing the way I was thinking of my life or how I was speaking about my life in a way that would perpetuate me to live the best life that in my head, I was like, well, I want to be happy. I want to be whole. I want to be these things. Okay. I can choose that. But back then I thought that it was something that was outside of me that I had to go find. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's so incredible when we can take responsibility for where we are in our life and how we're thinking. And it starts by shifting one thought at a time. And our brains are the strongest pharmacy on planet earth. 
So, I mean, we all have that, that power. It's just, can we repeat it enough times and can we get to the point where we're working towards our future versus living in our past and living in the victimhood? Exactly. Exactly. Well said. And that is exactly what was here. And so when I, you know, in 2006, I had another rebirth and it was the same on the heels of what you're talking about of, you know, like ferociously bringing communication back to the center of my psychiatric practice. Eventually closed down that practice, um, you know, in Cincinnati, because I took most of my patients off meds, they got better. And I decided I would travel around the world. And I started traveling all over the US and then actually did go worldwide. I was in Asia for a little while, Thailand and Nepal. And then I also did a little work in Tel Aviv and also work in uh, London and Paris. And the idea, again, was kind of learning how mental illness shows up in these various different parts of the planet. And what's interesting about mental illness is it shows up differently in different parts of the planet. Now, if you have a broken arm, I need to tell you it's a broken arm in Singapore, too. It's <laughs> yeah. a broken arm in Reykjavik. It's a broken arm in Auckland. It's the same broken arm. It is. But if you have some psychiatric symptoms that you think are mental illness and you go to Tibet, it's going to be different. You're not going to even be diagnosed with anything. If you go to Zimbabwe, you'll probably be promoted to the head of the tribe. If you go to Reykjavik, you'd probably just be incorporated into the society. Like you, there's no such thing as mental illness on a global scale. Mental illness is a cultural phenomena. It's a place by place, time by time, cultural phenomena, conversation whose time has come for a transformation of its own narrative. And that's what I am. And as the undoctor, that's what I take on. See, as the undoctor, that's a moniker that a friend of mine gave me a few years ago. I thought it was cute. And so did he. You know, he said, I'm, I'm giving you a $10,000 moniker. I was like, I'll take it. Thank you I so love much. It. And the undoctor, what the undoctor does is undiagnose, unmedicate, and then undoctrinate people. Now, you asked an important question, and that is, how does someone get started with that? And here's the thing. There are two groups of people for me that can benefit from undoctoring. There's a group who has already bought in at least once that there's something wrong with them. And they're taking medicine now. And they don't like the effects of the medicine. But every time they try to get off, they get a spike of the symptoms that are marketed to treat, which is incorporated into the medication anyways. Mm -hmm. Like even if you didn't have the symptoms when you started taking it, if you come off those medicines, you'll get a spike of the symptoms the drug was marketed to treat. It's built that way. It's naturally built that way. I don't know if it's nefarious, but it's real. And there's the placebo effect that works like, what, 30% of the time. So well, you think, oh, I'm getting off my meds. So there's also that worry and that whole, I mean, I think even with COVID, like, I think there was something the CDC published that like the second leading cause of death of COVID was mental, hmm. was mental illness because people were so fearful and under so much stress that when they got diagnosed with COVID, it was like a whole, whole thing. So yeah. that's a huge part is that placebo effect, not to mention the chemical effect that is taking place on top of that. That's right. And so exactly, there's a you know, multiple mindset effects. And then also there really is this effect that when you come off a of medicine, you get that spike. And then you're left with, well, I didn't like taking medicine, but coming off medicine was even harder. So I'm going to choose to be on medicine because it's better than coming off. And now you've bought a lifelong journey into being on medicine forever. And, you know, this is a very difficult population to undoctor because what happens is they don't want to be on medicine. They think I'm going to take them off of medicine and then put them on something else because clearly there's still something wrong with them because they already bought into the idea that there's something wrong with them. 
Yeah. And so they want to know, what am I going to do instead? And that's a much more difficult population to work into this area. So if you're already taking medicine and you want to be undoctored, one of the things you have to consider is in this process, you're going to have to consider the possibility that there was nothing wrong with you in the first place, despite what you heard and despite what you've agreed upon. Yes. If you can go there, then undoctoring becomes a possibility. You have to be able to go there, though. This isn't a matter of just removing meds. This is a matter of removing the notion that there's anything wrong with you, even though you might know there is. Another piece of this, Anna, is we all know there's something wrong with us. Every human knows in their heart that there's something. I know there's something wrong with me. I'm different than everybody. I already know that. You know that, too. Yeah, I say something is something. Yeah, something is could be off. Off. Not that it's wrong. Different. is off, different, absolutely. Yeah. And that is that is purposeful. Exactly. We're all supposed to think differently because otherwise we wouldn't thrive. Diversity is what allows us to thrive. Like if we were all the same, thought all the same, we would become extinct. There is a very important piece to this. You know, I always think like all these kids diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, and like sit still and da-da-da-da-da and all that. And I'm just like, oh, the most successful people that I know are people that probably, because when I was a kid, there wasn't that diagnosis, but yeah, we would be considered ADD, ADHD. And as I became an adult, of course, I had, I had that told to me as well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, And so, yeah, we do, we take on the diagnosis that they give us and those people, that's a really, that is a tough population overall. It's a tough population to really get that there might be nothing wrong with you. It's, it's a very tough population because most people, by the time you get to that door and you break through and someone says you have social phobia or you have chronic PTSD or you're on the spectrum or you got narcissistic traits or you're, you've got major depression, you got bipolar type two, you got ADHD, you got whatever the hell you got, OCD, whatever you got. I'm really happy about getting that diagnosis because you can actually give that diagnosis some credit for the fool that you've been day after day. Right. And then you don't have to take responsibility for your behavior. That's right. Exactly. And so, you know, if I could give up responsibility for the stupid stuff I do every day and put it on somebody else or put it on a (laughs) diagnosis, I would do that in a second. I don't (laughs) like the idea that I'm responsible for the stupid stuff I do. No, none of us do. No, we all know that. We all know that there's something wrong with us. Oh, that's what we were saying. So the idea is, is that if we know that there's something wrong with us, it's actually normal. It is normal to know that you are abnormal. It is a normal trait of humanity to know that you are different. And yes, you are different. And frankly, yes, you're also the same. You're the same as all of us. There's no uniqueness in your truth that you're different than everyone. Every one of us knows that we are different than everyone. And that is therefore not a unique experience. It is a human experience ultimately. So when you start getting that notion, when you're ready for that, are you ready to step into the idea that maybe you don't need to take medicine because maybe, just maybe, there's nothing wrong with you in the first place? You know, being well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society is no sign of mental health. That's Christian Murphy saying that. And, you, you know, you got to believe that. It's just simply true. This is a crazy world, challenging in so many ways, like we talked about before the show. And if you're having a problem putting this all stuff together, good for you. Like, welcome to humanity. That's where welcome to humanity got birth. The whole (laughs) idea is, of course you are. Of course you're anxious. Of course you're afraid. Of course you're depressed. Of course you're you're confused. What are you trying to tell me that you're not one of those things? Because it's not even true. 
You can't be living right now and not be anxious, depressed, confused, angry, upset. You cannot. It's not possible. So if when we come to grips with that, there's a there's an opportunity to actually create a network of humanity, other people who really just want to be heard, which is all, all of us want. Now, there's something universal as well. All of us want to be heard. All of us want at some level to make a difference while we're here. All of us want to be understood for who we really are. If you really want to heal somebody, understand them. If you really want to heal somebody, resonate with them. Hear them. Listen to them. Be with what they're saying. Anyone, by the way, even that person you can't stand, even that person who's a fool, who's an idiot, who's wrong, that person more than anything just wants to be heard for who they are. Now, it's not entirely simple. You can't heal the world. It's not like everybody's receptive to that. But if you really seriously want to create peace, the way to do that is to receive another person in such a way that they feel heard. And that's just the truth. You know, that's the core value of communication and the core value of undoctoring and the core value of Welcome to Humanity, which is my overarching brand. The idea is that as long as you're capable of communicating and connecting in a harmonic resonance with another human being, you have the possibility of being a healer, healing yourself and healing them. It's just true. There yeah. is, there's no medications that, are, that will hold a candle to that occurrence. I can't tell you the amount of clients. When I do an initial intake with clients, I spend almost two hours with them and I do a whole variety of things. But the one thing that is said almost every time is they'll tell me, I already feel better. I feel like I was heard and they're so grateful. And all I did was listen. That's right. It's all you have to do. You don't have much left else to do after that either. You may think you're skillful at various interactive modalities. What's going to work is continuing to listen. Yeah, it is. And it's in a lot of times the client already knows through listening, they're already sharing with you what they need. Exactly. It's already coming from them. Yeah. And then it's just like helping them set their sail, essentially. That's the sale. They can get to the point where they want to be. Exactly. That's exactly right. Perfectly well said. That was my post actually this morning. So that's you're right on target. (laughs) Or we should I should say you're right aligned with me. I don't know if either of us are on target, but it makes sense. (laughs) You know, this is the thing about, und- there's the other group. So the other group of undoctoring are the people who are considering coming into the mental health field because they think there's something wrong with them. They've tried everything, you know, they've talked to their friends or friends have told them you need to see a doctor. They've, they're pretty sure they're sad about, you know, overwhelmingly sad, too sad, you know, they're too depressed or too anxious or too nervous in public or not completing their tasks on time or you know, what they're thinking about past trauma, or they're unable to keep a relationship or unable to keep a job, but unable to sleep, and they think they need psychiatric care. Those people, that's an undoctorable group. That's a group who I want to talk to before they make that decision. I want to be the last exit before they go down that road. That is not the road. That's like throwing a toaster out of the window because it's not working, hoping for one final chance for it to like get better. (laughs) You know, it, it isn't really the only way to go and it doesn't even yeah. work. It's a preposterous, ludicrous, absurd way to go. And mm-hmm. frankly, what I said about Jimmy and Johnny is in many cases what happens in the institution. The institutions will diagnose you, promise, because no psychiatrist can get paid unless he diagnoses you. 
I was just going to say the more diagnostic codes that can be written in your chart is the more money that doctor can bill. And I think there's, and we don't even know long-term, like I think back to all the diagnosis that I was told that I had, which was, I have on my chart, ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, and then depression. And then there was one phase where I started to feel a little bit anxious due to the medications. And actually I wouldn't say a little anxious. I was very anxious. So then I got the diagnosis of anxiety. So I have all of these on my medical record from my early twenties. And all of that were normal human emotions that I was experiencing, but I was experiencing them and they were exasperated because of the choices I was making. Right. And because Mm -hmm. how I was choosing to think what I was choosing to do every day and not nourish my body and do the things that I should do. And so, yeah, so I I always think long-term of what's going to happen in 20 years when all of these young people are saying, oh, I have anxiety. Oh, I have depression. And then they're going and they're getting put on these mind altering medications before their brains even fully developed at around 25. And so we're putting kids, young people on these mind altering medications. Their brain's not even fully developed. They're getting all these diagnoses and who knows where healthcare is going to be or sick care is going to be in how many years. And we already know it's very expensive. So what happens when you already have all these diagnoses down on your mental health record or on your, you know, medical records? I am like red flag left and right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's the idea of a lot of diagnoses and then there's this other important increment, which is going from no diagnoses to it to some diagnoses. Zero to one is important. So when you walk into a doctor's office, you will get at least one diagnosis. If I write no diagnosis on my code after our visit with each other, then I won't get paid for that visit. It's not. Yeah. When I see my doctor, I see an ND. And he knows when I go in, I pay cash for my visit and he is not allowed to have a chart. Right. Beautiful. Not allowed to. We're not writing anything down. We're just discussing. And then, yeah. you know, I maybe get some blood work because I want to like check things and just, you know, but no, that was a new thing I started doing and started paying cash because I just, and I have insurance, Yeah. but exactly. I mean, it's not worth it. By the time I pay my copay, I'd rather pay a little bit more and not have anything that we discussed on my medical records. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where undoctoring can be really helpful is this, we start looking at that. That's like core undoctor stuff that you just described. The idea is what my intention is as the undoctor and to undiagnose and unmedicate and then undoctrinate is to be there as a healer. And how am I going to be there as a healer? It's going to come through my listening and giving you the kind of respect you deserve to be heard and to be resonated harmonically with so that we both can heal and the world can heal actually inside of that listening. That's all that's here to do. That's all that's here to do. It's all that's ever been here to do. It's all that's here to do now. It's three-year-old Freddie watching his two brothers and his parents talk back in the day, knew that to be true. And I still know it to be true. It's not something that can be found in the journals. It's not something that medical students learn, or it's not something that the residents actually learn. In fact, they don't even teach how to talk anymore in the psychiatric residencies. There's nothing about that anymore. And that's fine. You know, that's just what psychiatry is. It's not like it's it's just what psychiatry has become. Of course, it's become that way. It's not like being mad at anybody. There's no one to be angry at. There's no one to point a finger in the machine at. The machine is simply a machine. Where the action is, is with the client. 
the only agency and sovereignty, the only place where power really exists is when the client can determine that this experience I'm having, uncomfortable as it is, unspeakable as it is, intolerable as it is, painful as it is, is part of this whole smorgasbord called being a human. When we can do that, when we can do that and accept that in other people as well and help people get to that point, when we can learn that there was nothing wrong with us even then, and there's nothing wrong with us today, and the experience we're having, even if it is thorough and total confusion, you know, like you had mentioned earlier today, a little bit of chaos, you know, even when you're having these arming experiences, if you can get that this is part of what it means to be in life, and that there's nothing wrong with you. If there's nothing wrong with you, then you don't have to take medication to help you get right. And if you don't have to take medication to help you get right, you actually don't have to go to a doctor to find out what's wrong with you either. And that's where undoctoring really comes happy. Oh, I love that. And then it's just, you know, also showing up in life and doing things that are good for you, exactly. <laughs> which is, you know, have positive conversations, yeah. drink water eat yeah. some fruits and vegetables, throw those in there, move your yeah. body, you know, all these things. And yeah, you know. detoxify, be mindful, help others, you know, yeah, be yeah exactly. Do, be creative, do art, music, dancing, singing, mm -hmm. drama, cooking, writing, gardening, do those things. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not, if you feel like crap and having this human experience, look at some of those things that maybe, maybe I should get outside and be in nature. Maybe yeah. I could try something different because the other thing is too, is we know the definition of sanity is doing the same thing over and over expecting different results. So if you're not feeling great, you're having these experiences, why not change the daily activities that you're doing to start to shift and change things? Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And it, look, it, it's not entirely simple to change habits. I've noticed before, you know, I could talk a big game. I could think a big game. I can order other people to do something different. And then I look at my life and I realize I didn't do any art today. I didn't do any writing today. I didn't do any dancing today. I didn't do any singing today. I didn't do any mindfulness today. I didn't do go outside to nature today. I myself didn't drink enough water today. You know, I had too many potato chips today or whatever. And it's one thing to say, and it's another thing to plan. And then ultimately to actually do it, it does take something. It's a totally different realm to mm -hmm. get up and put on your shoes, put on your sandals or go out and on the grass and you know, get one with nature or go to the local field or, you know, take a hike or whatever. It's a matter of not only planning, but implementing and integrating and then actually taking action. And it's not entirely simple. It's not, it doesn't come from our thinking. We are so caught up from our thinking that we think if we think it, then that's close enough to having get it done. Same thing like with reading books. You know, I had a talk with a friend yesterday. I have so many books in this house. Oh my God. I have thousands of books in this house. And if I could read like 10% of them, I would be a way better person. But instead, <laughs> I end up like buying them and maybe reading, you know, 10 pages or 50 pages or 100. if I read 100 pages, I feel like I've actually gotten through the whole thing, even if there's 400 pages in a book. And, you know, we cut ourselves short because we get caught up in the bullcrap that it takes to be alive in these very days. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm all, I'm all about like little things. I, I celebrate if, if I wake up and I drink a big glass of water before I have coffee, I'm like, yes, did check Good. that. I get a point, right? Like okay. it's not about perfection. It's just about progress and making little changes and doing things. Yeah. But it does always amaze me how many people don't like realize that, yeah, putting your bare feet in the grass has a lot of health benefits, like very basic things 
that like now it's like in our culture, it's like these things have been so dismissed and like people think, oh, well to get, you know, like electrolytes, like they have to drink Gatorade or Powerade. It's like eat an apple, have some watermelon. <laughs> Those have electrolytes, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it is interesting, you know, just, just how everybody thinks. And it, it all comes back to education too, you know, so communicating effectively, learning new things, you know, just being open and being open. And I love it. Be open to the possibility that there is nothing wrong with you. It's just what's so, and it's just what has happened. Yeah. So what's possible if it's just what's so, and there's nothing wrong with you, how would your life be if you were able to let go of the diagnosis of these things that you've been told you have when they're not anything we have, it's something we may experience, but it's not ours to have. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. I have a a couple of different analogies that I think fit in right here that I like to speak to. You know, if you go to a doctor and, you know, you tell them a set of symptoms, let's say, and they tell you you're an elephant and you agree that you're an elephant. And then you look it up on the internet. You're like, look at that. I, I got a big nose. I'm a little bit heavy. I like water too much and my memory is better than average. And then it's like, I'm an elephant. This is so great. I mean, I find I got everything explained now. I'm an elephant. And then you go tell your sister you're an elephant. She gets it. And now she and you and the doctor are all in agreement that you're an elephant. Now, here's what happens with that. You're a flipping elephant from now on. You just are. And anyone who disagrees with you just doesn't know the truth. They yet. They will. When they finally get around to it, when they finally look at the internet and see that you meet all the criteria, they will get that you're an elephant. They may even get that they're an elephant too if if they actually be honest with themselves. And this is how we take on diagnosis. Now, how do we take on treatment? This is also really important. Why do people go around the block every month to get their pill bottle so that they can slam it down their throat every single morning? And even though it doesn't work or it actually makes things worse, you know, why, why would they do, why would people do that? Here's how this goes. If you go to a doctor, let's say you had a mosquito bite on your elbow. All right. Let's say you had one. And it was just gnawing at you. Just like it was just there. And it's like, it doesn't get better. And every time you scratch it, it gets bigger. And the next day it's worse. And now it's affecting your sleep. And you're like, Fred, I got, I got this mosquito bite on my elbow. You know anything about this? And I'm like, yeah, I got a specialist. He lives in the north and you should go see him. It's like, okay, let's do it. So I'll do anything. This thing is just nagging me. So you go to the specialist and the specialist actually, you know, he's there with his white coat and his glasses down on his nose and all that. And he says, let's take a look at your elbow. And then, you know, you take down your long sleeve shirt and you show him your elbow. And he says, yeah, that's, a, that's definitely, definitely a mosquito bite. That's, you got a mosquito bite. And I'm the best at getting them to go away, too. And he said, oh, good, doctor, I'll do anything, whatever it takes. And he says, well, it's only going to hurt for a minute. You're like, okay, I can take a minute. That's not a problem. What is the deal? What are we going to do? He pulls you in the back room and he cuts off your arm at the shoulder. That's what psychiatric medicines are. (laughs) So you come back in the next visit and you look for that mosquito bite on your elbow. It's gone. Cured. Yeah. You're myopic, you're myopic enough to realize that you do not have that mosquito bite on your elbow. You also don't have an arm. But mm-hmm. if you don't look at that, if you don't see what else got sold off in your treatment plan, then you won't see the damage that got done with those, that diagnosis and that medicine and that therapy. So these medicines do a lot more. Sometimes they actually do reduce the sense of depression. But if they do do that, they're reducing the sense of all emotions. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. specific- 
typically aim at depression. They're entirely blunting. They, you know, those antidepressants. The anti-anxiety agents actually cause anxiety. Like you will, the only people who are having panic attacks in reality are people who are taking anti-anxiety agents. Those drugs cause panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And you know, that you think, no, I need to take that drug. And when I have a panic attack, it's true. It actually helps with the panic attack and then turns around and causes more panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. We're not looking at what it's costing you. No, right? we're not. like that instant gratification, not looking at what it's truly costing you. And, you know, like so many people in their own minds keep beating themselves up, keep making everything into something even bigger. And it's like, you know, like weight loss, for example, it's like, well, what is this costing you for you to worry about every little thing you put in your mouth for you to worry about how your clothes fit, what you're going to wear, you know, like how you're going to actually like be functional with, you know, playing with the kids or going to on a trip, you know, like I work with people that, you know, when they're overweight, it's like, it's just like this constant energy suck and their brain is constantly worried about all of these things versus shifting all of that thinking. And when we start working on that, it's amazing, you know, oh, I lost five or six pounds this last week. And we didn't change their diet, by the way. Exactly. (laughs) We just started changing the lens in which they view things. Right. It's the last thing from linear. Ultimately, I feel like I can gain weight without eating food. Yeah. Well, our brains are very powerful. They can change the biochemical makeup of the body. And we know that to be true. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there really are days where I have gained way more weight than the amount of things I put into my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think of how heavy you feel. Like if you guys are sitting there and you're listening to this, if you think of something that really upsets you, you can feel yeah, the, the shift in your body. You feel the weight, you feel the heaviness. And then when you think about all the things that bring you joy, you feel lighter, you feel yeah. more energetic. So it's a real thing what our thoughts can do for us. It's a real thing for sure. It's a real thing. It's a real thing for sure. <laughs> so yeah. if somebody is out there and they fit into one of your two categories and they're like, but Dr. Fred, I don't have you or how can they get a hold of you? Or what do you recommend the type of doctor that they should find? if they feel that they even need to go to the doctor, right? But if they consider that nothing's wrong with them anyways, where where should these people go? What resources do you think that would be next steps for them? Well, there's, you know, there's good things to read. And there's good you know, people out there who, you know, like naturopaths who are willing to play the game along these lines. I don't have a lot of recommendations inside of the conventional psychiatric field. I just don't. I mean, I have a couple friends, you know, uh, Kelly Brogan's a good friend of mine. We hang out together sometimes and we, uh, you know, we relate to each other some. Um, There's other doctors who are out there that, you know, are pretty well known who have different ways of looking at mental health. Even some people like reading Gabor Mate, some people like reading Daniel Amen with respect to their mental health. I now Gabor and Gabor is actually closer to me in my thinking than Daniel is. And, you know, those are good, they're good books and good reads. I have a couple books out there, but they're not really aimed at this particular topic. They're aimed at finding your true voice, meaning what I have is the strategy for success through communication. It isn't a matter of determining what's wrong or if there's something wrong with you. There's a presupposition that there's nothing wrong with you. Like, that's what I get. I really don't care how weird your thinking is. I don't care if you're hearing voices. I don't care if you just were mean to your spouse. 
I don't care if you're not finishing tasks. It's all good. It's all good. It's all called you being human. I do care. There just doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It's fine that that's happening and you got these habits that are counterproductive or dysfunctional or imbalanced. I totally get that. But it's not a matter that there's something wrong with you. And so if you really, you know, the truth is I do do some coaching and I have some group coaching models as well. So if people want to reach me and talk a little bit further about this, one way to find me would be at the, my major website, which is called Dr. Fred, drfred360.com, which gives you access to everything I'm doing in all the books. There's a bunch of freebies in there and my books that I've written and courses that I deliver, podcasts that I've been on. It's a pretty cool site. And you can also get a contact. You can contact me from there just by hitting the contact button and write me a text. That's one way. Or you can come to my um, anywhere I am on social media or my actual website at welcometohumanity.net. And there's another space where you can book yourself a communication appointment, a discovery call. If it's not me and I can you know, listen to you and you feel like it's not a good fit, I do have some friends that I'm very likely to be able to connect you with. And maybe you know, you're actually going to land on that list here now too. Someone who really understands this and can take new clients and actually is a better fit. I have no reason to work with anybody who's not a good fit to work with me. Why would I do that? It's just silly. Yeah. People do that. I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, they think, maybe they think they're going to like make money or something, but why would you work with somebody who's not a good fit to work with you? I yeah. Don't again, energy drain. Like we should only be doing things in our life that actually, when we leave the situation, we feel more energy and right. we don't feel more depleted. That's exactly. very, very important. That's kind of a rule of thumb that I do when I work with people, when I interview people, you know, it's like, okay, who do I want to choose to bring into my space? And is this going to be something that's going to give energy? Share with them your book one more time and then your website one more time, please. Yeah, I have two books. And one of my books is called The Creative Eight, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression. You can find that on Amazon and you can also find a page turner version and an audio version on this drfred360.com. And that's a good place to get it. And that comes free. That's not, you can get a free uh, audible version or a page turner version. And the other book I wrote is called Find Your True Voice. And you can find that at findyourtruevoicebook.com. And also get that access. The PDF is on at drfred360.com. So that's where the books are. And then I have a couple courses. I have the Healing the Healer course and where I help disenchanted healers who are no longer aligned with what the field was that they thought they were getting into. And then my signature course is called the True Voice course, where I use podcasting as my template. And really help people find their true voice and maybe end up being podcast hosts or at least podcast guests because there's no better platform for really delivering what's important to you. I love that. And we'll put all this in the show notes as well so everybody can can have sure. a listen yeah. and connect as well. So Dr. Fred, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was really a great conversation. Thanks for joining us today, you guys, on this Happy Whole You podcast. We are so stoked that you are listening. And if you have questions or want to reach out to us, you can always email us at info at happyholeyou.com. And you know where to find us at Happy Whole You on Facebook and at Happy Whole You on Instagram. So have a wonderful day. Have a great week. And we will see you soon.